Hello. This is the Performance Club Roundtable, our far more topical and casual podcast, certainly a lot more than the main show. It still deals with cycling performance, it's just a little chattier and it's a little more like us discussing and thinking out loud about cycling performance topics. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. Today, we're doing one of our kind of special edition round table discussions. Unfortunately, uh, Cyrus and Damien were not uh, available to join me today, but I did bring on a guest and who is also one of my athletes and I consider you a colleague at this point too because as as I'll explain soon here but the topic we're going to talk about today is a little bit of a case study anecdote of how we got Tony ready for nationals this year and that could be a pretty plain topic except for there's a few things that are in here, I think that make it interesting. The first off is that where it was in Albuquerque, it is hot there and it's known to be hot. And yeah, we are obviously going to talk about heat acclimation and what we had to do to get you ready for that. But it's interesting because you are also uh, a fellow and you do your research in thermal physiology. <laughs> yeah. And you were, you also work with athletes. You're also a coach. So, um, that's yep. kind of the neat thing is that we had two coaches, two environmental physiologists working <laughs> to get one of them ready for nationals. So what's interesting is like, I mean, I could talk about my approach and it was it was really interesting during it, as I was saying earlier, that on the surface, that could be a little bit worrisome. You could say there's too many cooks in the kitchen at that point, but I think it went swimmingly because... Yeah, you, you could see where that would just not go a great way. So I pretty much just followed the plan. So I don't know. I I, I, I would give you the credit. <laughs> well, what's really handy about that is when you're the boots on the ground and you have the experience with doing a lot of the stuff. Without me being there, I could see a lot of that would have been tricky. But um, Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're at, how long you've been coaching? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean. I guess I'll just go way back. Like, so I, uh, I was actually, I raced motocross my whole life. Started racing motocross when I was seven years old and, uh, turned professional when I was 16 and raced pro motocross for nine years with a little break in there. Cause I injured myself. Uh, then I, you know, when I was recovering from that injury, I decided that I needed to like find a real person job at some point. So I decided to get serious about school started studying exercise science uh, and, you know, doing undergrad courses. Um, I thought I would be, become a physical therapist, but I actually fell in love with physiology. And so I uh, ended up doing my master's in exercise physiology also. Um, both my undergrad and master's were at Fresno State University in California. And uh, while I was doing my ba- finishing up my bachelor's degree, I guess I decided to, to try racing bicycles i used you know road cycling for cross training for motocross which is pretty common and so mm-hmm. it was kind of a an easy transition and kind of fell in love with racing bicycles it was a, a whole new thing that i'd not done my whole life you know and the the, the trajectory was like so steep like the, you know how i was improving versus racing motocross was kind of as fast as i was ever going to be it had all the, you know, pretty much as much success as I was ever going to. I was getting a little bit old. I was in my mid-20s. Uh, so I ended up transitioning to racing bicycles and, and just getting really serious about my education. And pretty quickly, so I started racing, did my first race on the road in fall of 2011 and then started seriously racing in 2012. And uh, I think I was cat. It was cat three in like six months, seven months, something like that. And then took another year to, to upgrade to cat two. And then a year and a half after that, I think I was a one. I started coaching in 2014. I was, it was right before I started my master's degree, actually, I guess. 
so yeah, I've been coaching for about eight years and then I, I finished my master's degree in 2016 and then started my PhD in 2017 and finished my PhD in 2020. So PhD, what was it in and where are you at now? Yeah. So I guess during my master's, I, uh, you know, kind of ended up, I didn't know what I wanted to do specifically in terms of research. And I ended up kind of, uh, a new faculty member ended up coming in and he was a thermal thermoregulatory physiologist. And, uh, I just started working with him and fell in love with that area. And so uh, I ended up going on to do my PhD in thermophysiology at uh, Penn State University. And, uh, and now I'm, now I'm a postdoc still at Penn State, still doing that kind of research. Mm -hmm. the, the reason that it appealed to me when I was doing my master's, when I found out that that was an area of research, like I wasn't really familiar with it. But uh, as soon as I like thought about it, I was like, I hate the heat. <laughs> I do so poorly anytime, it's, you know. And so I, you know, I'm from Central California, and I mean, it's 105 degrees all summer there, and the the races that would be in the hundreds, I just it was so miserable, and it was always such a struggle for me. And I, I was like, why, why do I hate the heat so much? And so it really appealed to me to try to try to learn more about it, and. Uh, so during my master's, I kind of had that more like performance perspective. That was where, where my, my interest was. But as I was finishing up, I kind of realized that for one, in America, if you want funding to do research, nobody really cares about performance. So, mm -hmm. so that, you know, if I want to make a career out of doing research, then having it be more from a health perspective was going to be the way to go. Mm -hmm. But I also just felt like I started to care more about that perspective anyway, personally, from a research perspective, just, you know, being able to protect people from dying rather than making marginal gains in performance, which, you know, obviously I care a lot about making marginal gains in performance, <laughs> but from a research uh, perspective, I, I just kind of wanted to go that route instead. Yeah, I didn't care enough. That's why I went to Australia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll, I'll realign with you on that. But yeah, well, it's nice. Like I can, you know, I can have the funding to do the research that I still find very interesting. But then also, you know, in my day, day to day, you know, work with doing thermal physiology research, I learn enough that I can also apply that to performance and, you know, work with my athletes using that kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So because this is a conversation about the heat and heat acclimation along with coming into you know an a race can you give us your anthropometric measurements so that the uh so the listeners can kind of visualize what you look like and, and yeah kind of your strengths before coming to work with me and what they are now and that type of stuff yeah so i'm kind of a giant in terms of cyclists i'm six six and yeah i was actually at the end of the winter i was i had chubbed up a little bit i was almost 220 pounds now i'm down to 200 so still you know a big dude so uh i was naturally a sprinter a, a pretty good sprinter i from racing motocross and i also raced bmx and stuff all growing up so i was always like sprinting you know and so when i started racing bikes i was sprinting was very natural to me uh, over the years i've kind of transitioned to being a little more of a kind of all-arounder power rider i guess you'd say yeah uh yeah kind of an all-arounder uh unless all-arounding includes climbing <laughs> yes so, exactly. so, so you know my 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 preference is you know getting into breakaways and trying to sprint out of breakaways is the, the kind of rider that i am yeah so i think i've given enough hints to where we're what our topic is today but just to kind of frame frame it officially here is we're basically kind of trying to look at what's in the scientific literature well, without necessarily diving into the specifics of it and what the best scenario based on the literature and then kind of how things actually panned out for you and then looking at what we did right and what we did uh what we could improve on but just for some kind of references for the for the listeners of things to maybe read and look at that would help them themselves if they were trying to do the same thing. Again, this is 
a tricky thing because you have so many things going on at the same time. It's already difficult when you're trying to train during the competitive season because you're trying to manage recoveries and if you can, trying to increase the athlete's performance during that time. So that's, that's where I find a performance model very, very useful and measuring training load and all that kind of stuff. But then when you're getting ready for a major competitive event or an A race or whatever you want to say, call it, then you are also incorporating in an overload potentially, maybe starting like four weeks out, something like that, whatever you, wherever you would typically do your overload. And then you're also going to be looking at a taper. So you have areas where you're going to have high amounts of training stress, followed by an area that's going to have less training load, uh, typically less volume in order to get them ready for this event. And that's tricky enough. I can spend hours setting just it up for people to just to make sure I can get it all right. And I'll probably do it. Like, I think with you, I think I worked a few weeks ahead to get an idea to make sure I could get it to work. And then every week after you would upload all your logs and everything, then I went through and adjusted based on like what you actually did. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what the approach is today. So first thing we'll, I'll just rattle off some of the papers that I think are good for this and worth looking at. That's not to say that they're the only ones out there, but they're for the time crunched coaches and athletes that want to get into the literature without maybe doing massive amounts of searches, the best papers that are potentially out there. So first off, I think is this good paper is the heat acclimation decay and reinduction uh, a systemic review and meta analysis. It gives you a good rundown of like the benefits and how long you need to heat acclimate for and that type of thing. But the one thing you want to understand is that like when when you do the heat acclimation, you want to understand like how much stress is needed for it, and then you also want to understand like once you get it, how quickly it decays, and then also if you're going to reintroduce it. And the other thing that to know with heat acclimation is that just get in whatever you can, I think, um, because uh, two sessions is better than no session. One session is better than no session. And that first session has, has such a major impact. That first session has a bigger impact than any of the rest of them. That's how I always kind of interpret it. So there's no time like the present to start. Yeah, I think like the first five days you have like, I think like the first five days, right? You have like 90% of the adaptations, if mm -hmm. I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of papers out there on short-term short heat acclimation. Now, typically, I think the research usually puts it in, well, I guess say mid, what do we call it, medium term, but... The safest bet is having 10 to 14 days of heat acclimation. Now, um, that's that's going to be tricky because I think those heat acclimation, re that heat acclimation research is a lot of times it's just set up with maybe with athletes, um, but it gets, it's not like you have to have consecutive days. And the other, the, some of the things I think about is you can, have days that are spaced apart and you might need to because the athlete is you have the extra training stress you have the extra you have the extra load um and that stress is uh additive so 10 to 14 days if you were going to kind of divide the adaptations that occur during heat acclimation the typically the cardiovascular adaptations are the ones that happen in the first seven days or uh, or so, seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. And then the stuff that happens later has more to do with the skin adaptations or pseudomotor adaptations. Um, is that how you're kind of looking at it too, Tony? Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, I mean, you have the like immediate, like very early on, you have the expansion in plasma volume, which is a large part of the cardiovascular adaptations. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And so, it, you have this ideal situation where you're like, oh, if I can get the 14 days in, that's good because then I get the what's where the sweating better basically is what is the in the 
the vascular and the skin at those adaptations. Those happen l later in that 10 to 14 days. But in terms of the athlete, if I'm limited here, at least I'm going to get the cardiovascular stuff in. It would be a little bit concerning if it was switched around, if like the skin adaptations happened first and it took like 14 days to get those cardiovascular adaptations. Um, which, a uh, little side note, this is why heat acclimation is way cooler than than altitude training. <laughs> but so... Uh, it is, it is way cool. Um, because it's just like you get the you get what you want so much quicker. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, in this scenario, you really need to consider what the ideal is, but then be realistic about what you're going to get. And I think heat acclimation is pretty the for the word I guess I would be using is forgiving. Yeah, it's not like altitude where the adaptations or the what you're looking for is that erythropoietin and that happens after a long con almost continuous exposure to altitude the um the research that i've seen is that the the lack of erythropoietin is the more exposure you get to 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 sea level or not altitude that actually hampers it so it's the erythropoietin is way downstream um, as opposed to mm -hmm. heat acclimation, it's like you do it and you're going to get some benefits. But that could also set people up for a false sense of security, too, because there's nothing to say that, like, man, if you get your maybe you get 21 days of heat acclimation in and then you're just better than the other guy, potentially. Obviously, there's a diminishing return. But that the longer heat acclimation, there's some research around that. I think some has come out from Lundby and Ronestad, and they're looking at, well, if you're increasing plasma volume, is there in, an increase in hematocrit and blood after that? And I think they have seen some positive results, but then it gets into like, it's it's way downstream. It's, it's a few weeks of hardcore uh, heat acclimation. Yeah, and at that point, how much are you starting to sacrifice your training for the heat acclimation? And would, would just the increased training volume rather than the extra heat acclimation sessions be more beneficial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. So some of the papers I have here is that uh, there's that meta-analysis uh, with the decay and the reintroduction from Danon, and you said you were doing some research with him. Yeah. There is another paper that's uh, kind of a narrative review from Julia Casadio. I think I pronounced her name. She's Canadian. Um, I think she's in New Zealand now. Uh, she's also associate with Paul Larson. I'm Jim Cotter. Yep. And um, so she has a narrative review that she did, I think, during her PhD. And it's called From Lab to Real World, Heat Acclimation Considerations for Elite Athletes. That's a really good one. Another one I have here is a review on short-term uh, heat acclimation and training improves physical performance. And that is focused on team sports and that. But again, it's a review around short-term heat acclimation to get some insight onto that. Uh, and then I also have a review down here about passive heat acclimation for endurance athletes. And that's with Heathcote at all. And that's actually free because that's in uh, uh, frontiers. Yeah. So that's the research. And then some of our individual experience in the lab with it, I've heat acclimated myself using passive heat acclimation and a portable sauna. sauna and I've done plenty of heat sessions in the, in the chamber. Yeah, so I've done both of those on myself. Um, I haven't done it for competition yet. Um, what's your experience with it, Tony? Yeah, when I lived in California, um, you know, again, hot summers, hot racing. So I would, uh, I didn't have access to an environmental chamber or anything like that, but I had a gym with a sauna. So I would do early morning rides. I would drive to my gym, start my ride from my gym go do my intervals or my endurance ride or whatever it was and then sit in the sauna for typically 30 to 60 minutes. I mean, I, it took a little while to work up, right? Like you start off with 15 minutes or so and then, you know, got to where I was doing 30 to 60 minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. um, now being at, you know, here at Penn State, we have two environmental chambers that are fully controllable. So uh, last year I did gravel worlds in Nebraska it's a 150 mile gravel race and in the, in August. And so it was like 
completely exposed. There's no trees out there or anything. So it gets pretty hot. And so I, I did a bit of heat acclimation in the environmental chamber leading up to that also, but not super structured last year. Yeah. Yeah. Other than, and obviously what we did this year. Yeah. 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 I think one thing is for the listeners, just not to discourage them is when we start talking about environmental chambers, because that was something that also gets works into this because it was really handy to have someone that had access to an environmental chamber, but um, a lot of people don't have that. Although, you know, building a heat chamber at home, heat chamber in quotes, <laughs> uh, versus, you know, building uh, um, an altitude chamber at home, I think the heat chamber would be easier and less expensive if you have access to the right stuff. I think it was, was it Matt Heyman. I think he had one basically set up in his garage. He had a crash. I think he might have broke his collarbone. And this is before Perry Roubaix, before the one that he won. So he was just doing it right mm. in his garage. So these are things that, you know, if you have the right setup, you can get a heater and things set up in your house and have your own heat chamber. And I mean, you don't need, you don't. So like there are, you know, studies that show that post exercise sauna bathing, or, you know, if you do, if you have a hot tub or just a, a big enough bathtub that you can just lay in the bathtub with really hot water for a while. The thing is, you know, when you're training, your core temperature is elevating already. So, you know, in the thermophysiology world, we say that, uh, you know, exercise training elicits low grade heat acclimation on its own mm -hmm. because you do heat up your body repeatedly. And so that elicits some amount of heat acclimation already. It increases your sweat rate, it tends to reduce your core temperature a little bit and has those cardiovascular adaptations. There's a lot of that crossover. So if you know you do the training and then you sit in a, a hot tub or in the sauna or whatever to further increase your body temperature, you can really get most of the acclimation, most of the adaptations that come with heat acclimation without having an environmental chamber or having to do your workouts in the heat per se. Yeah. Um, I think the way I look at it is with with a lot of the coaching that I do is I, in my head, I'll try to build the ideal situation and then I'll scale it back from there. So with your sessions, you know, ideal situation is all right. So, uh, New Mexico's going to be dry heat. So we have to worry about humidity. Um, you're going to be exercising when you're in competition. And then we would try to get the heat to as close to what you would expect there. Mm -hmm. So that would be ideal. So heat acclimation through exercise, but of course that's not going to work out for everybody. Yeah. So what we ended up doing, even though you had a chamber, we still didn't do all of the sessions as exercise sessions. And I guess we'll get into a little bit more of the details of that, but just having this ideal of if you're going to be doing a road race, then being able to heat acclimate for 45 minutes to an hour and a half is going to be ideal. And, you know, there's a lot of the heat acclimation protocols that are out there are like the ones out of Lorenzo's paper to 45 minute submaximal bouts. Um, and they think that they did that 14 days, I think. And it was at 40 degrees, I think. Mm. Like if you get through that, you're going to be pretty heat acclimated, but yeah. it gets into like the conversation about like, what can you do with that athlete really like how much that can affect their training like they got to get intervals in there yeah. they got to get you know where, where are you going to program all that kind of stuff and it gets into a, kind of a long conversation and do you need to have you know a lot of the stuff that's in the literature is back to back i think i might have mentioned that but do you really need back to back heat acclimation sessions and from my research you know we were only doing hot sessions two times a week and still saw some adaptations for thermoregulation. So obviously we would have wanted more and I wasn't trying to heat acclimate them, but when you get, you know, eight sessions in two times a week and you see something that at least sets one end of the scale. Right. And so it, it tells you, at least tells you that if someone misses a day when they're trying to do their heat acclimation, it's okay. And it might be beneficial for them because they like is it's hard to manage that stress because all of a sudden now you're training and you're adding that extra stress in. And when we talk with Lou Plapp, 
he was saying like all the heat acclimation he was doing, he, I think he was saying his numbers were down like 10%. Yeah. Quickly. I think it's important to like, to note that we don't really know what the best heat acclimation paradigm mm -hmm. is because mm -hmm. there has never been a study that's like compared a bunch of different methods of heat acclimating to this point. And that's something I've thought about for, for years, but it would just be such a massive study and like every every participant would have to basically do a crossover where they become deacclimated and then you reacclimate them with another protocol and it's just such a massive and unwieldy study that i don't i don't know if we'll ever really know mm -hmm. truly but yeah that's that's why but, but i mean yeah i mean something's better than nothing like you said earlier mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah the approach is do as much as you can while still managing the stress yeah and just realize that there's going to be a diminishing returns after a certain point. Yeah. Right. So we did get a little bit ahead of ourselves, but uh, that's okay. Uh, but let's just have a d quick description of the training that was coming in into this point of the year. So I think let's go back to the lowest point for your CTL, for your chronic training load. I had a look this morning and it was 42 and that was in February 25th. And, um, we started working together the 25th of February. Now, probably a little bit later in the season than what we'd want to start, but it is what it is. It always is what it is, right? Um, so why don't you tell me about how your season progressed from there? Yeah, so I would back it up a little bit and just say, like, mm -hmm. you know, I during my PhD, like I said, I started my PhD in fall 2017 and finished it in fall 2020. So a few year period there where I just uh my training and racing was like was very minimal you know I was pretty unfit for a few years and I was still kind of doing a little bit of racing just because I didn't want to stop uh but I was not good for a few years there mm -hmm. so then I started my postdoc and I was just kind of struck really struggling to get back I wanted to get back to racing seriously but just struggling with motivation and uh, just so much going on, which is why I ended up reaching out to you. Just, I just needed somebody to kind of help me, you know, get going again. And um, so, yeah, I was at a pretty low point. I spent a little bit of time considering like, do, am I going to keep racing? What, what am I doing here? So it was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, if I'm going to do it, let's do it seriously. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was at a yeah, pretty low point in my fitness potentially like my lowest <laughs> and uh it, you know regardless of chronic training load i was just not fast you know so so yeah then we just we started working together and it was you know as with any athlete it was just about you know trying to create the the stimulus over time and you know i was getting ready to start the racing season i think my first race was in march so not a lot of time to, to do a lot of building before having to really manage the training stress to allow me to, you know, go out and be at least semi-competitive at every race I did. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I remember I noted from, from one of our early discussions was you saying you're not good at recovery. And, and I kind of challenged you on that. I was like, okay, you can think that, but let's see what happens after we work together for a little bit. So how is, how is that going now? Like my, I'm getting better, but it's always been a struggle. Like that's been always my weak point is just being able to do a large training volume and recover from it. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of that is just building over time. And I mean, I, I had years where my training volume was quite low, so it's, it's taking a bit of time. And, and even before that, when I was, my training volume was higher than it is now, it was still always, uh, it was, it was never easy. And so, uh, and I think like some of that is attributed to, you know, from what, the injury I had racing motocross, I broke my back in seven places and I have a lot of musculoskeletal issues that, that kind of come from that. And so, uh, yeah, I just get like these like kind of hip pain and a lot of like different pain that you know, uh, if I overdo it, then it, it's, uh, almost debilitating sometimes. So I just, I have yeah. to be really careful, but, but yeah, it's definitely getting better. So hope I'm hoping that next year I can get it to where I'm, yeah. I mean, for me consistently doing like 12 hour weeks, you know, 
is, is hot, really hard. So I'd like to get to where I can consistently be doing 12 to 15 hour weeks next year. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think it would be that hard. I think you're a good candidate for performance modeling. I think most people are. <laughs> so the one thing with the sprinters, when I work with sprinters and as I train them and their phenotype starts changing more into an all-arounder and you just kind of try to kind of check in with how their peak powers are looking at the high end of the high end of the power duration curve. But I think with in your case, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but usually get the impression that most people that come with a heavy duty sprint, when they start looking more like an all arounder, they like that because all of a sudden they're able to get in breaks and hang with things that they weren't able to do before. And it, I think it gives them more opportunity to win races. Yeah, a hundred percent, especially for me. Like I was a naturally good sprinter, but not a great sprinter. So I could win sprints all day from cat five through cat three. And even in, you know, cat two races, but in pro one, two races, you know, I was, uh, I was like a fifth place sprinter kind of thing, you know, not, not first place sprinter. So, so yeah, I mean the best that, and so the team that I was racing for when I, uh, upgraded to cat one and I was racing for, you know, an elite team in California, we had two very good sprinters on the team who were both much better sprinters mm-hmm. than me. So at that point was really when I need, uh, when I kind of realized that I needed to try to, um, reshape myself as a, as a racer and start to focus more on being able to get in breakaways and win from breakaways. And then also, you know, if that didn't work out, then be a very good lead out now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I think that gives a little bit more background on your racing and, and what we were doing and in, coming into the season Of course with most athletes, you know, you have the pre-competition portion, which is, that's like the bread and butter. I think being able to get in good blocks of training in that period, um, hopefully the weather's good, that the athletes motivated, no sickness or injury that's going on in that time. Cause once you get into competitive season, in terms of if you're going to look at it just in terms of like chronic training load, it, it just levels off or the this the rate of increase in that really is not as good as it would be during the preseason. So I think it's important to know to don't start training to, you know, like a month before you're going to get into the competitive season. The, the more motivated you are during that first part of the season, I think the better, honestly. So getting into the preparation here, today we're going to look at the last basically like four weeks coming into this build here. Now, that's not to say that, I mean, the build into this was from day one, right? But we're just focusing more around these last four weeks because they weren't super typical. I mean, training and all that and programming is always a little bit tricky but when all of a sudden you're throwing in heat acclimation trying to overload and then trying to get a taper in then like i said you're sitting down and and thinking for a while and pondering how it's all gonna fit in so when we were prescribing it we could have started the heat acclimation process a little bit earlier but it is what it is right so you, you deal with the cards you're dealt with and so tried to do as much heat exposure during that first two weeks while there was the overload portion and trying to get as much heat acclimation in during that point. But when you're putting an overload with heat acclimation, you're asking for trouble. So Mm. I wouldn't do that with someone that was new. I think the only reason that worked is because of your experience as an athlete and obviously the, the PhD, the heat acclimation experience previously, all of that kind of stuff where you had enough autonomy and critical thinking about what was going on to say, if you weren't feeling real great, then you were going to pull the plug on something or contact me right away. And that's really important to have from an athlete in terms of what you're going to allow yourself to do with them, I think. Because you got to think, say, if you're prescribing the workouts every week, all you know is what's on maybe Monday for what's going on with them. And if it gets to Wednesday and all of a sudden they're feeling like crap, well, I didn't know that on Monday that they were going to feel like crap on Wednesday. And if they just continue with the week as is, assuming that that's what they what you wanted, and you're like, no, if I would have known that you were going to feel like be fatigued and feeling like crap on Wednesday or sick, 
then I would have prescribed the week differently. Mm-hmm. It's good to have athletes that can look at a week and say, this is how it should be planned. And if it's not going like that, they're contacting you and adjusting things along the way. And so I would never recommend doing heat acclimation when you're intending to do the overload period, unless you have a very, very experienced athlete. But to get ahead of us ourselves a little bit, those two weeks of overload didn't really end up being two weeks of overload. Yeah. Again, like what you have on paper is ends up being different than what happens in the in the end. Yeah. And then after those two weeks, then we had to try to do as much of the bulk of it during that. And then we have to like say, what is the minimum amount of heat acclimation that I can do during the taper to prevent decay? And do I want to sneak in a little bit to see if I can bump it up a little bit? You know, still, again, it's, it's on the fly um, at that point getting back to like what we wanted to do was the best scenario was exercise in the chamber the cool thing about having a chamber readily available was i was like hey do you want to try some hot hit (laughs) and we got to do a few of those sessions again it's really handy when you have an athlete that i could just hand you the paper that i published on on my stuff and i said here just reproduce this and yeah and i just said well instead of doing five by fours do five by fives so that you could do something that you've already done and then also prior to like getting into the heat acclimation and the overload we did uh i think it was a five by five session that wasn't in the heat so we could have like a baseline and look at your numbers not a necessarily testing us a, a testing session but something that was you're familiar with something that we'd seen before because once you get into the heat the sessions in the heat then those numbers are going to drop. So it's good to see how much those numbers are dropping. And as you do consecutive five by fives, because my recommendation is probably if once you do an intervals, probably stick with the same ones because you would hopefully be able to see that you're getting better over time. Now, based on the research I've done, that isn't necessarily true. If you don't see an upward trend in every single five by five session, it's okay. It doesn't mean like uh, things are going badly. Uh, but mm-hmm. it is one thing to kind of be able to do to have some kind of similarities and uniformity through the training. But I don't know if there's anything in there that you picked up within the the approach that um, of with our, what we were trying to do early on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I think so many ways to skin that cat, right? And I think it worked out well. It was one of many ways. And I mean, like, again, it's, you know, with uh, having an environmental chamber, most people aren't going to have that kind of access, that kind of thing. So, but mm-hmm. yeah, there were definitely improvements in my power uh, over the, the few weeks that I did it. And certainly, you know, we were monitoring sweat rate. So I was doing pre and post body mass and my sweat rate was increasing. My power was increasing. My perceived exertion was during submax was going down so like if i was at 225 watts for example perceived exertion was certainly going down in the heat which is a a great sign mm-hmm. during the five by fives obviously per- perceived exertion stayed the same because i was going all <laughs> out but yeah. power was going up so mm-hmm. all, all yeah. the signs that you want to see yeah. yep yep definitely and then just a little bit of talk about the kind of the theory about the taper is Tapers are a bit of a conversation, but if you just kind of want to go with a generic taper, you could say it's anywhere from 14 to 10 days if you're just kind of throwing out some numbers around that. And I think with your approach, so we haven't really talked about what your focus was. We said nationals, but the layout for it was you had a road race. Initially, we thought the road race, there was the road race and then a day of rest and then the crit. But, you know, you're obviously focusing more on the crit than the road race. But then they, the, it turns out that the road race was the day before the crit. So that got a little bit yeah. tricky there. But you were focused more on the crit than the road race. And because of that, I think the, the, the thinking around that is you'd want to be a little bit fresher. But because we added in that extra stress for the heat acclimation, and that's pretty hard to model. I didn't even try to model it. What I did was allow you to be fresher, um, have a higher TSB during the week. And along with that, um, a lot of times I won't start tapering an athlete to like 10 days out or something like that, depending on the race and what kind of fitness level they're at. But this will shoot for the two weeks just to make Mm -hmm. sure 
because it's not just the tape, right? It's still the heat acclimation sessions that are in there for the decay. Yeah. Yeah. And so the overload didn't really, like you, you mentioned earlier, it wasn't really truly an overload, at least in terms of what you can see in the CTL chart, mm-hmm. right? But but with that extra physiological stress that comes with the heat acclimation, if you could actually model that, it probably looked a little more like an overload than, than what you see in the, in the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And once you, it's really tricky to model heat stress as well, because it's not a specific exercise stress. Um, so how much does it really benefit your performance, uh, especially when you're in a ther- thermal neutral condition or, or conditions that are approaching thermal neutral? But there are there is enough overlap between the adaptations that you get from heat acclimation and exercise that they're not mutually exclusive. And mm-hmm. that's you know one of the million dollar questions around that is like, well, how much does it really benefit my my training or just the performance side of it outside of thermoregulation benefits? But that's almost impossible to, to answer because there's always thermoregulation that's happening during exercise. So these are two things that are very hard to separate, but at the same time, they're not the same. So you definitely have to kind of consider that. I guess one of the anecdotes I have around that is when I heat acclimated myself and I was doing it for the intention of piloting a study that I was doing and the outcome of the study was trying to improve performance in a thermal neutral situation or like something that's around room temperature, I guess. Uh, temperate conditions somewhere between those so not necessarily in the heat and one of the things i figured out was just by how i felt during the piloting from the heat acclimation was by the time i got through a number of the sessions and i got to a saturday and my week was usually pretty standard when i got to that saturday i felt like the what i felt like and what the tsb was on the model were very different Mm-hmm. And I felt very fatigued at that point, even though I should, if you would have just looked at my training, I should have felt a lot better. And one of the conclusions I had was like, if I wanted to feel this fatigued, I could have just done three days of interval sessions because that's kind of what it felt like on my legs. And I was like, well, what would a, what would a block of intervals had and in terms of an effect as opposed to just and and a performance down the road as opposed to just like this heat acclimation right Mm -hmm. and i would bank more on if they were just normal intervals and a benefit out of that versus like heat acclimation but in your scenario we're trying to get you heat acclimated for hot conditions yeah but if it all of a sudden was cool and that day in albuquerque it would have been like it would have hurt your performance right yeah that's one of the nice things. It's not not all is lost if the weather isn't exactly how you want it at the day of. Yeah, well, what's funny is that it ends up it, it ended up being ninety degrees. And, you know, I was mm-hmm. acclimating with the you know anticipating it being a hundred plus. Ended up being ninety, but I mean, it's absolutely still felt like you know the heat acclimation was beneficial to me. So I'm you know living in Pennsylvania where it doesn't get into the nineties very often, and so. 90 mm-hmm. typically feels pretty hot to me, but you know, the, the weekend of the races felt fine. Mm-hmm. So let's just get into some numbers of like what we actually ended up doing over that four weeks. We had a total of 11 acclimation sessions and serendipitously, we had three hot outdoor sessions. I think one of them was a race. So that would be hot acclimatization. So it's hard to say like how many For sure, we had 11 acclimation sessions, and those were broken into, we had three hot hit sessions, and you said the last one was cut short, but that's okay. And then we had three or four hot rides outside, including the one race. And then the breakdown of where those heat acclimation sessions were, we had, I think it was six during the first two weeks, and what, the numbers are adding up here totally, but it would have been five so in a second or how does how did that turn out that's that sounds about right yeah like yeah, it was pretty it was pretty well front loaded i feel like so the first week we did i think four and then like the second week i think we did three but yeah i mean it was pretty pretty well front loaded. so we did a pretty good amount of sessions in the first couple of weeks and then there were a little more 
separated after that because I think we'd, you know, we're pretty pretty confident that we got most of the adaptations early on, and then after, and then especially the last week, it was like, okay, let's just make sure that we're maintaining mm-hmm. the adaptations that we've gotten. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because you don't want to push it too far. Again, it gets back yeah. to like something is better than nothing. Realize there's diminishing returns, and if you keep trying to add load on heat, it could potentially affect your ability to perform just exercise. Right. So be, be careful. Uh, and it's something you definitely, I would be conservative about. Um, even, even though both of us are thermoregulation scientists, so there could be the worry that we could get overzealous on it, but again, pretty happy with how we both kind of pulled on the reins. We're just being very realistic about the outcome of that. Um, and then during the overload week, in terms of like what happened during that week, we had almost 10 hours training the first week in about 477 tss uh 12 hours the second week there was a couple there's races on both those weeks it was you know it's harder to get the tss higher that second week had 577 tss or six days of riding both weeks and um but yeah it i mean you have a, a real job and you coach athletes and so you have a busy schedule and so it's going to be hard to get the hours in of training if you are also getting in heat acclimation so spending time on one thing is means it's going to get lost somewhere else Mm -hmm. so yeah busy schedule getting in that still was a very stressing week and then you also have to think about like well this is a new thing this isn't like you just putting on your kit and going out the door this is time kind of figuring out what you're doing and all the stress about like if you're with a new athlete, you know, the stress of them trying to figure out, oh, how am I going to do this right? So again, I think optimally you'd want to try to do it earlier in the season when it, when it wouldn't have so much busyness going on and then just trying to attenuate the decay. Yeah. So after all of that, what did you think about the outcome? Going back to what you were saying, you know, the, the first couple of weeks or whatever that, you know, I had races each of those weeks that the, the last race i did before nationals was it was two weeks before and i was kind of towards the end of the heat acclimation stuff and it was really nice because that race was actually it was 95 degrees in philadelphia that day which is a pretty hot day you know Mm -hmm. in in pennsylvania um and it went great like i you know got into a break that lapped the field and unfortunately didn't win but was you know but uh yeah the the heat acclimate i was like felt really good and i remember after the races me saying like oh, really i can't believe it's 95 degrees it really doesn't feel like that and somebody else was like yeah it's because you've been heat acclimating it's hot as shit out here you know and uh, so uh, i was like really confident about the heat acclimation at that point and i was you know two weeks out from from the race the nationals so i was really happy with that mm-hmm. it was a really good test of fitness there too yeah yeah, yeah, both fitness and heat acclimation. So I was feeling pretty confident going into nationals. Mm-hmm. Since the hot hit is my baby, what'd you think of those? Would you do you think you'd ever use those with your athletes if you had easy access to a chamber? Yeah, I think that um, doing some amount of that is, I think, beneficial probably because yeah, actually doing actually performing in the heat, you know, because that's what ultimately what you're going to be doing. So from a like ecological validity perspective it, it kind of makes sense mm-hmm. uh, you know i think that to, to me i think that maybe a little bit of like a, a mixture of you know where you have some hot hit and then some you know regular like you know thermo neutral or outdoors hit mm-hmm. with you know sauna bathing afterwards i think a little bit of both is seems like it could yeah i definitely want to bring up the fact that like there's at least two papers out there right now that show if you do high intensity exercise during your heat acclimation. If that's all you do is sessions of like consecutive sessions in the heat with high intensity exercise. I think there's pretty good evidence out there to say that like that just decreases in performance will happen because you're just going to overstress yourself. Yeah. And so I think it, there's a difference to be pointing out between heat acclimation protocols that use high intensity exercise within the heat acclimation and then hot hit. So high intensity yeah. interval training is typically never more 
than two times a week unless you've got a block of it or something like that. And so if you are going to use the hot hit or high intensity during your heat acclimation sessions, I would only do maybe two of those a week and really be realistic about how how much you're stressing yourself. Um, and yeah, and then supplement the, the rest of the week with something like a hot bath or sauna or submaximal heat acclimation sessions. The other approach I think about is if you do do your heat acclimation block or whatever, however you want to do that before you would do your, um, your overload phase, then you could usually use hot hit twice a week to kind of as both your hit sessions and, um, uh, prevent the decay of the heat acclimation there. That's theoretically that could actually work. Yeah. One thing that I think is, you know, worth considering with the hot hit in terms of really like kind of more the mental aspect of it. So when you're doing, so to a lot of people, notice that they have lower power numbers on the trainer that's pretty common Mm -hmm. and then you're definitely going to have lower power numbers in the heat Mm -hmm. so if you combine those two things your power numbers when you're doing the hot hit for you know if you're doing five by fives you know and your your power is 30 watts lower than what you expect to be able to do or more it can be fairly demoralizing Mm -hmm. so i think that still incorporating some outdoor intervals can be really helpful to, to a lot of athletes so that they can go out and see, yeah, okay, I still got these numbers. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not a detraining or anything, which, you know, we, we can know as coaches that they aren't detraining from a physiological perspective, but you have to always keep in mind, you know, what's going through the athlete's head and make sure that they aren't getting overly demoralized by, mm-hmm. you know, seeing those low power numbers, because we know that that can really have an effect on, on the psyche for a lot of, uh, you know, athletes that are really driven. Yeah. And during, during the research on those intervals, we blinded the athletes to their power outputs. So that's as a coach, that's another thing you can just tell the athlete, you know, like just go in and do it by feel and do it as do it maximally over the course of the session. And don't worry about your numbers, which gets tricky because, you know, like there's about a minute there before, in the protocol I use where, you know, you're supposed to ride at approximately 50% VO2 max, which is somewhere around the endurance pace. So they might have to look at their power at that point. Yeah. If you can not look at your numbers, it might be, and just go off a of feel that might be a way to get around that kind of demoralizing <laughs> effect. So, yeah. So what I would do, yeah. I mean, so during the session for sure that helps. So I, what I would do is like on my Wahoo head unit, you know, I have time at the top and I have power below that. And I would just press like the up button so that you can reduce the number of fields that are actually showing on your head unit at the time. So that only the time, like the interval time was showing on my head unit. And so I wasn't seeing, and then, you know, when I was in between intervals and I needed to like just be writing, you know, 50% or 50% of critical power, I would toggle it back down so that then my power was showing. And then when the interval was just about to start, I would toggle it back up. So, you know, so the, during the intervals, my power wasn't showing, but still after, you know, after the session, when mm-hmm. you go in and look at your numbers, you're like, shit, that's so weak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. According to the research I've done, we, there was no loss in power um, from the group that did their hot intervals versus the group that did their. Yeah. And like I said, you, like we know as physiologists that there isn't going to be an actual impairment, but. Again, just making sure that, you know, we're also keeping in mind just our athlete psyche, you know, that, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. so for me, from, from my perspective, I'm like, okay, I, even still, like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, it's really hard to push down those thoughts, even mm-hmm. knowing what I know. So, you know, I know that other, you know, athletes who are not scientists are probably going to be something that's really going to weigh on them a bit. Yeah. Which that's where again like you maybe put as you said like giving them a session outdoors during uh, thermal neutral conditions when they're fresh and just say like how do you feel on that on those intervals see you're doing all right or maybe if you're doing regular critical power testing with them 
and you have standardized efforts, you can be like, okay, well, just go out and do your 12 minute bout today or something like mm. that. Or maybe they could even go for like a KOM that they usually go for or something like that. It's yeah. um, something. That yeah, I think of... little things like that to just make sure that they, that they recognize that they're not losing fitness. Yeah. And, and actually I might even go for something a little bit more subjective and it also gets around the, the testing component of it. So when you did that race and I saw in your logs that you felt like you're performing well and you, and you lap the field, I was like, cool. I don't have to do any kind of testing with him to reassure him that things are, are going well. Yeah. Cause if all you're doing is, uh, your hard efforts are in the heat and you're not getting that feedback or potentially, like you said, it's playing on your head. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if the athletes will just go out and be like, I felt good during this group ride, I was just able to kill everybody on that. And you're like, cool. Then I guess we don't have to do any kind of formalized testing to prove to yourself that you're doing well. Yeah. Moving on to like what we think we got right. I've got, it appears that the heat acclimation worked at yep. least for the conditions of, for the race day and the taper seems about right legs felt great for the race i think yeah uh all things considered <laughs> it only took two environmental physiologists with coach slash coaches <laughs> to figure this out i would hope we would get it at least to that point <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we did that correctly it was good i think we did good a good job mixing mixing the types of acclimation and being flexible yeah. with that yeah, I think so. It's funny going into it, you know, I so I flew out on Wednesday and then yeah, initially my races were supposed to be Friday and Sunday, but then they ended up changing the schedule so it was Saturday and Sunday. So I had a couple of days to just kind of, you know, spin the legs and relax a bit and but man, Thursday and Friday my legs felt awful. Like after the travel I just felt so bad. I was actually on Friday I was a little concerned. I was like, dude, I I was so tight. Like I just had like so much muscle tightness and and I was like, uh, man, I hope that tomorrow morning I wake up and it's gone. And and man, I got on the bike on Saturday and was just like, holy crap. Like I felt just, I felt amazing, you know? So yeah, I was like, wow, like perfect timing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Then his next question is what, what could we have improved? So we worked on this outline together. And when I looked up and I read it, I was like, you put put down mostly issues on my end. I was like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's, you know, but you, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit already. And it's just my, my schedule is insane. And, and the, the past month or so, especially, and with kind of no end in sight for the next, you know, month or two, um, it has just been crazy. And so like it, just my training volume i think like during the overload phase even we're being careful not to do too much along with the heat acclimation but i still think that i could have done more Mm -hmm. but it's just uh yeah i mean a lot of times i don't get the full planned tss in i you know i get the workouts always done but sometimes just you know cut the tss a little bit short and just because i just don't have the time Mm-hmm. So I think that that was a big part of it. If I could have just pushed it a little further, you know, it would have been, I mean, who knows if it would have made a difference, but yeah, yeah hopefully yeah. over the next year, I'll be able to, to, you know, get in a little bit more. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is just probably starting that heat acclimation earlier before we would get into the overload. So we could have like a proper overload that was focusing more on the training as opposed to, trying to get in heat acclimation sessions on top of it. So that's one of the things. And then the other one was, we talked a little bit about submax testing. And so I kind of serendipitously found that, as you were saying, if you have to do a sauna session or hop in a bath, one of the things you can do to kind of help that heat acclimation session is just do a 10, 15 minute warm up on a bike. Cause then you warm up the core, right? Mm-hmm. as opposed to if you just hop into the bath or just hop into uh, a sauna then the heat has to go through all of your tissue to the and then warm up your core but if you warm up your core already before you get into it i think it's a lot more effective and it's a shorter bout and that kind of thing but one of the things i 
I kind of found out when I was doing my piloting was if you standardize that warm up at a certain watts. So if you do, for example, maybe 50% of you to max at one and then maybe that for 10 minutes and what I was doing was 75% of my VO2 max for five minutes after that. It was interesting because if you're riding a consistent power every time, you can watch where your heart rate's at. Mm-hmm. And, so you, and then RPE and heart rate, now now you have a submax test that's also your warm-up. And so now you're able to kind of have a little bit better feel on how that extra stress is playing on, on you. So, And if you do a submax test, and other parts of the season, then you also have that data there. But what was interesting, what I found with the 75% is we've gone into the rabbit hole of high, of an exercise intensity and how tricky that is. So this might not work for everybody, but 75% of VO2 max, when I'm fresh, is below critical power. But what I found was there was a few bouts in there when I started doing the heat acclimation, when I rode that second part of the, of the warm up at 75 VO to max heart rate, just, it was like, you know, it was going to peak, but it was very, very hard. It, all of a sudden 75% of VO to max must've been over my critical power at the time, right? Like mm-hmm. for how fatigued that was. And so that will get, you're like, okay, all of a sudden the, not only is my heart rate higher, an RPE higher during the the very sub the fifty percent VO two max or the but when I got into something that was closer to the threshold, all of a sudden the heart rate was showing that I was o- over, and the RPE was showing yeah. that I was over uh, my threshold. So that could be something that can be incorporated in. Like it's one of those things where, like as a coach, as a practitioner, you're, you're trying to kill two birds with one stone as much as possible. So the warm up that gets you warmed up before you get into that into that sauna or that bath can also be used as some kind of submaximal test. So I, I think we would yeah. be kind of need to incorporate some of those um, if, it, if, the, if it's logistically possible. But uh, other than that, um, I guess we should say how you did <laughs> um, in your races. Uh, so how did you go? Yeah, I mean, the so the road race for me was always like a not the the odds weren't in my favor for sure so again i'm a bigger guy uh there's a it's a two lap course and in you know 10 12 miles into the the lap there's a climb that's like uh i mean you're kind of going generally up toward it and like kind of rolling up like stair stepping and then it's a one mile climb at like almost eight percent but the last almost half a mile of that is 13%. So just like a wall. And, uh, you know, as a bigger guy, I was like, well, if I can get over that twice, then I can, you know, be competitive. But unfortunately, I didn't get over it with the front group. And so we chatted about that before that, you know, if if I'm not able to do that, then and, and not able to chase back on fairly quickly, then pull the plug. So I think we, we set, uh, you know, a threshold of like 75 TSS. If I got above that, just, and I'm not with the front group then just pull the plug. And so that's what ended up happening there. Uh, so that was somewhat disappointing, but not surprising to me. Uh, so fortunately I pulled the plug early enough that, uh, I felt very good going into the crit. I wasn't fatigued. Um, and the crit, just the script with the crit didn't go the way I expected. There were a couple teams in the race. Uh, and I, I knew, I know one of the teams, like I know all the guys on that team fairly well. I used to race with them in California all the time. One of them is one of my close friends. So, and I knew that one of the guys, he got second in the crit last year and they were working for him to try to get him the championship. I was like, okay, well, if they're not in a break, I'm not going to go with it because they're going to control the race. Well, a break of three got, got away and they were not able to, to keep it in check. And that break mm-hmm. ended up staying away, unfortunately. So I just kind of settled in. Um, I made a couple of efforts to get into the break, but just wasn't able to get up there without, you know, dragging people with me. And so I ended up settling in, hope, hoping to, to take one of the last two podium spots. Um, 
attacked with two turns to go in the last lap. It was a good move, but nobody fell for it. So <laughs> uh, I ended up basically leading out the sprint, and I finished ninth. So yeah, top yeah, ten. A little, yeah, mm-hmm. it was top ten. It was, it was all right. You know, it was a little disappointing. I was hoping hoping at least for a podium, but I, I you know, I definitely was strong enough to be there. Just the again, you know, the race script didn't work the way that I was hoping it would, and so very, very motivating for next year. Hoping to to build upon what we, you know, what we the kind of base we set this year. Really work hard through the off season and be ready to go crush it next year. Yeah, yeah, and there's plenty of ceiling, as as I said bef- uh, with you before. Yeah. Like the the CTL levels that you're at right now. I can barely perform at, so <laughs> so I, I'm excited to see you uh, when we get you up to uh, these higher higher levels of training, and so see how that all rolls out. Yeah, for sure. Towards the ends of this season and rolling into next season. Yeah, but um, yeah, again, thanks for coming on, and uh, congratulations to how your athletes did at Nats. Yeah, thanks. All right, uh, that was Tony Wolf, and uh, what is what is the name of your coaching business and how can people get a hold of you? How can people follow you on social media? Yeah. I'm, uh, ATP coaching, uh, website, atpcoaching.net, And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, I guess. Yeah. Cool. So awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. And I'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, probably meet up in a week or two to, to talk coaching. Yeah. Stuff. yeah. anything new in this episode? Awesome. This is a listener supported podcast. So we would be stoked if you supported us by becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club and providing a monthly contribution. With your backing, we can continue our mission to deliver the best in cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community for a better sport. Click the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. Don't forget, Jason, Cyrus, and I offer coaching and consulting services for cyclists and teams. The links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening.